Um, it's, it's really great to be talking about Etty Gillespie. My, my guess is that a lot of you won't have heard of her. And nor would I until I used to editate the editate edit. <laughs> is this going to be a good evening? <laughs> I used to edit the Christian, the UK Christian Meditation newsletter, and sometimes someone would tend, send me an interesting quote put in. And someone sent me an interesting quote from Etty Lessam, and that's the first time I'd ever heard of her. So she sort of stayed around in in the background of of my uh, knowledge, really as a very shadowy figure, until Kim told me I'd got to... (laughs) 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 I got to do this, so here I am. (laughs) And I have to say, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to have been forced to read this book. (laughs) And I hope that after the end of this evening, you will feel forced to read it too, (laughs) and will get so much out of it as as I have. In the first half, I'll talk, I'll give you a bit of background to her and and, and begin to get into the text of it. In the second half, you you can get into the text yourselves and then we'll come back into discussion. Um, The first thing to say about, now let me just start with her, with some background to her. She feels very modern because she is. She was born in 1914 and lived in Holland. And she died in Auschwitz in 1943. She was a Dutch Jew. You can almost guess that, can't you? She was a Dutch Jew. So we're talking about a life of 29 years. She was born to a father who was a classics teacher and head of the local secondary school, so very much an academic bent. And her mother, he was Dutch, her mother was Russian and was passionate and chaotic. And when you begin to read her, you see both those aspects of her father and mother so clearly in her. The, the academic, she wanted to be a writer. She was a student of Russian and taught Russian. That's how she made her living. Um, but was a woman of great passion and great emotion. She had uh, an older brother who became a doctor, a very clever doctor, and a younger brother, Misha, who became a pianist, and Misha will appear in the story later on. So she had an academic bent, she took a degree in law, and then she went on to look at Slavonic languages and psychology, so um, a very serious student. And after university, or, or certainly to the end of her sort of formal academic career, she went to live in a house in Amsterdam with quite an interesting household. None of the others were Jews. She was a Jew, but she was a secular Jew. She she didn't practice her her Jewish religion. And the sense you get that is her Jewishness is not especially important to her. It's there and it's a factor. but if you, if you read her life without knowing that and without knowing the circumstances of it, it wouldn't necessarily be particularly obvious that that was the case. And in this household were an elderly widower called Han Wegeriff and his son, and a cook, a German cook called Keta, um, and a man called Bernard, and a nurse called Maria. So quite a mixed household. Um, And none of them were Jews, so she was the only Jew among them. And that becomes significant later in her life, because she escapes, because of living in that household, she escapes for some time some of the restrictions that were laid upon the Jews when the Nazi regime became stricter and stricter in Amsterdam. And she lived there as a sort of housekeeper. And from there, she also worked. So her favourite place in the house was her desk covered in books and all, always with some flowers. So that was, all, that was her, her milieu, really, to be there. But outside that, you get the sense of a woman with great vitality, great passion, great interest, going to cafes, talking philosophy and literature, um, and with circles of, of friends with whom she obviously kept in close contact. So you get a sense of this very vibrant, outgoing person, very interested in politics, literature, life and um, 
something of a bohemian, lots of lovers. Do you, know, do you begin to get a sense of the sort of person I'm, I'm trying to sketch in, in for you, which will then begin to come through in her writing? Not really the sort of person that you would think of if I said a mystic. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think she went to church or to the synagogue or any of those other things that you might imagine um, would be the case. So very much like a lot of us and someone that we can easily identify with, I think. 1914, so when she's 26, Holland falls into the control of the Nazis. And in 1941, the anti-Jewish pogrom starts. And it becomes particularly severe in February of 1941 because there's an anti-pogrom strike in Amsterdam. And the, and the Nazis then to take stronger measures against the Jews and against the Dutch resistance. What was the date of the strike? February 1941. You know the story, don't you? But I, I just want to remind you of it because it's so important, really, this background, that it, it's part of her, and I think we need to be, to be reminded of it. So it's, it's that story where the Jews, the Dutch Jews are forced to go and live in the ghettos, gathered up in the ghettos of Amsterdam. Restrictions start to be placed upon them, and you get hints of that. She can't, someone asks her whether she's allowed to buy toothpaste in a particular shop. She no longer has a bike, she has to walk everywhere. She can't walk in the park anymore. So you begin to get that sense of restriction. She's delighted to go to friends where there's, there's still freshly perked coffee. That's such a treat and begin to hear little bits of stories of her friends who are gradually being taken off to the labour camp Westerbork, just outside Amsterdam. A camp built for 1500 that soon at every inch is crammed with Jews in the most, and others, not just Jews, in the most dreadful, increasingly awful positions. And from there you begin to hear the stories of the trains, the freight trains, the cattle trucks going out every week to the east to Poland, to Auschwitz. So that's the background to her life. And she starts to write her diaries when she's 27 in 1941. And we have her diaries from March 1941 to October 1942, only 18 months. Um, her last diary she takes with her to Auschwitz and they presumably disappeared. But we do have some letters from the period from November to the following September, which throw some more, some more light on it. So what we're going to look at tonight is a, is, is a two-year stretch of someone's life. And I want to stress that because what happened in that two years is, is utterly extraordinary. This is a, the volume of um, her diaries that I'm going to use. It's called... Um, there's a big bibliography on the back of the sheet I gave you just now with it on. It's called An Interrupted Life, The Diaries and Letters of Etty Hilesson. I think the title's quite interesting, An Interrupted Life. I guess the editor's chosen that title because it was a life cut short at 29. But I feel very sure that that's not the way Etty herself would have thought about her life. She was very interested in an image from one of her favourite writers, from the, the German poet Rilke, of life as a ripening, a maturing. And she talks a lot about growing up, stopping being childish, growing and maturing. And I, I feel sure, and she never had regrets, she never looked back with regrets, or forward in that sort of way. So in a physical sense, you could say it was interrupted, but it isn't at all the sense that you have of her life when you realise that it's come to um, an untimely end. So I'm going to think of it as a ripening life. But they are diaries, and that's important to, to remember. So you don't get much detail. In, and then they're diaries of her inner life. They're rather like spiritual journals, if you do some spiritual journaling. That's what she's interested in setting down. So you get very little detail 
about what's happening, those things that I've tried to, to, to set as a framework and a background for you. You don't hear much of that in her diaries, except as they're relevant to her inner life, the maturing of her inner life. You get more in the letters at the end, because she's writing from the camp quite often, or from her sickbed in Amsterdam, about the situation. And some, one or two of those letters are absolutely harrowing. But on the whole, you don't get a lot of that, so you have to, to know that that's the case in the background. Let's have a look at that um, sheet I gave you, Etty Hillis and a Writing Life, as a starting point. What I've um, selected on that sheet is a passage from... They're the opening words of the diary, and then something from the last entries because they want to sort of give you a picture of the way she talks about herself at the beginning and the way she talks at the end. And then we'll have a look at what's been going on in between. Here goes then. This is a painful and well-nigh insuperable step for me, yielding up so much that has been suppressed to a blank sheet of lined paper. The thoughts in my head are sometimes so clear and sharp and my feelings so deep but writing about them comes hard. The main difficulty, I think, is a sense of shame. So many inhibitions, so much fear of letting go, of allowing things to pour out of me, and yet that is what I must do if I am ever to give my life a reasonable and satisfactory purpose. It is like the final liberating scream that always sticks bashfully in your throat when you make love. I'm accomplished in bed, just about seasoned enough, I should think, to be counted among the better lovers. And love does indeed suit me to perfection. And yet, it remains a mere trifle, set apart from what is truly essential. And deep down, something is still locked away. The rest of me is like that too. I'm blessed enough intellectually to be able to fathom most subjects, to express myself clearly on most things. I seem to be a match for most of life's problems. And yet, deep down, something like a tightly wound ball of twine binds me relentlessly. And at times, I am nothing more or less than a miserable, frightened creature, despite the clarity with which I can express myself. Well, what an interesting start. It's almost as though, isn't it, that she's come to a point in her life which outwardly looks successful. She's intelligent. She can express herself clearly. She can think clearly. She's in touch with her emotions, as we would say. <laughs> she can lead her life. She can, on the surface, looks pretty sorted out. She can cope with what comes her way. And yet, and yet, Life is not satisfactory. She hasn't worked out what its meaning is. That sense that there's got to be more to life than this. And now is the moment when I'm going to start to address that problem head on. It seems like a defining moment. She knows she has to write things down. She knows that's part of the process. But she says, but writing about them is very hard. Yet she, her ambition is to be a writer. So some of these contradictions that I think we recognise in ourselves, on the one hand this, on the, one, on the other hand that. Love, lovers, are hugely important to her. Yet somehow she just has this sense that that's, it's not what it's about. This feeling that part of us locked away and that image of um, deep down it's like a tightly wound ball of a tightly wound ball of twine binding her relentlessly. So something really heavily locked in. Knowing that sometimes really, if she admits it to herself, she's nothing more or less than a miserable, frightened creature. One and a half to two years later, this is how she writes. I think I can bear everything life and these times have in store for me. And when the turmoil becomes too great, 
and I am completely at my wit's end. Then I still have my folded hands and bended knee. What a strange story it really is, my story. <clears throat> the girl who could not kneel. Or its variation, the girl who learned to pray. That is my most intimate gesture. More intimate even than being with a man. And from another section. The soul has a different age from that recorded in the register of births and deaths. One can be born with a 12-year-old soul. One can also be born with a 1,000-year-old soul. A soul is forged out of fire and rock crystal. Something rigorous, hard in an Old Testament sense, but also as gentle as the gestures with which his tender fingertips sometimes stroke my eyelashes. I have broken my body like bread and shared it among men. And why not? They are hungry and had gone without for so long. And the last words of Adair, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. And this last piece is actually <clears throat> from a postcard that she wrote to a friend, which she tossed out of the cattle truck that was taking her to Auschwitz and got posted. Opening the Bible at random, I find this. Sorry, that's, that's, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. <clears throat> this is from a letter. Opening the Bible at random, I find this. The Lord is my high tower. I am sitting on my rucksack in the middle of a, freight, of a full freight car. Father, mother and Misha are a few cars away. In the end, the departure came without warning. We left the camp singing, father and mother firmly and calmly, Misha too. Thank you for all your kindness and care. Obviously it was true, sorry. <laughs> My confusion there. I think that's enough, isn't, you, isn't, isn't it, to, to indicate the change in her in that period of time. The ability to deal with her turmoil the sense that there is nothing that the world could throw at her, including being carted off to Auschwitz, which she couldn't cope with, because she had learned how to pray. And that ability to begin to give herself for others. An extraordinary life. So what happened in between those two points in her life? Let's start with that suppressed tight ball that she describes. That feeling that she was relentlessly bound by this tight ball of string. The sense that there was a lot that suppressed, that she had to somehow <coughs> allow to pour out of her so that she could free up this tight ball. And it being tied up with shame, it has something to do with shame, the shame she felt. And it's not guilt. She never talks about guilt. Guilt for things regretted or things done wrong. But she does talk about a shame, something more to, to do with what she is in the centre of herself, which is not as it could be, I suppose, that sort of sense. A shame that you can't, she can't quite attribute to anything in particular, but knowing it's there. She says fairly early on, I'm still ashamed of myself afraid to let myself go, to let things pour out of me. I'm dreadfully inhibited. And her insight is, and that is because I have not yet learnt to accept myself as I am. And a little later, she has a, 
a dream. She contracts an eating disorder. She has a great deal of illness in her life. Um, some of it sort of semi-neurotic sort of illness. Lots of ups and downs and bouts of depression. And lots of problems every month with menstruation. and um, Problems in the stomach and in, in the guts. Uh, and often she talks about taking loads of aspirins or quinine pills. So you get a sense of someone who struggles a lot physically with what's going on in, in her body. And she contracts, I guess, a, an eating disorder. And she, she dreams about it one night. And she dreams about her closest friend um, seeing through her and seeing what this eating disorder is about. And she says, I, I suddenly got a feeling of He's seen right through me. Now he knows exactly how materialistic I am. And she talks about it being difficult to put it into words. But what can be described is the sudden realisation. Now he has seen through me, knows what I am really like, and the horror of it. And I think as we look at bits of Etty, my guess is that you will find all sorts of resonances in your own experience, in the, what you've learned and found out about some of the other mystics from scripture or, or from all sorts of directions. And this one has a very strong resonance for me because it always seems to me that um, in the experience of mystics so there are these, these two reactions to God, the being attracted to God and also having a resistance to God at the same time. Um, and, you feel, and of course that happens in meditation, doesn't it? You want to say the mantra, but where are you? Somewhere else, <laughs> continuously. So there's this sort of double action going on. And here she is, she wants to pour out everything that's in her, but the horror of it, of some of it, makes her draw back the shame, touching into this deep shame within herself. But what she begins to know, to recognise, is that she has to learn to see things as they are. She has to learn to see reality. She has to learn to see herself as she is, to accept herself as she is. She has to learn to see other people as they are. She has to learn to see what's going on in the events around her exactly as they are, as clearly as she can. And to accept it. But not, you know, a lying down on the back with the arms in the air, as it were. Not a resignation. It's an active acceptance to be able to see things as they are and not flinch. And she talks about the courage that grows in her to be able to do this. The courage to bear everything, good or bad. And to somehow make a space for it within her. To make room for everything within herself. To accept it. And tied up with this is the increasing... Um, What's the word? An increasing, not just an idea, the growing within her of what she calls God. And we'll look at that a bit more, a bit more closely. She says, there's a really deep well inside me, and in it dwells God. Sometimes I am there too, but more often stones and grit block the well, and God is buried beneath. Then he must be dug out again. So she begins to see this as the process of her life, that God is there within, and her task is, is to keep on unburying him, <laughs> digging out the stones and the grit. That sort of radical, she wants to, to have that sort of radical openness to God, who is already there within. What are the stones and the grits and the blockages then that she begins to see within herself? 
One is fantasy, you know, escaping from reality, really. So she begins to recognise how much time she spends fantasising about her, her lover or what a fantastic writer she's going to be in the future and, you know, what wonderful thing she's going to come up with. And she begins to see what a complete waste of time that is. <coughs> how much energy it takes up that doesn't go anywhere. And that she has to begin to let go of that fantasy world, looking to the future, some imagined future, and she has a very rich imagination, and to focus herself on now, beginning to recognise that the task that she has to do now is what she has to give her attention and her concentration to. It doesn't really matter what the task is. Another thing that she begins to recognise, and that she recognises very early, actually, in her diary, is a, is a possessiveness. She talks about if, if she finds anything beautiful, a flower or a person, she just wants to sort of grasp it <laughs> and hold it to her until she's pretty much squeezed the life out of it. She wants to own it so much. And then she wants to go and write about it. But when she goes to write about it, she discovers she can't. Because she's sort of <coughs> squashed it. And she begins to realise that all of this takes up such huge energy. And then she has no energy for anything else. And she ends up losing what it is that she loves so much. Because she just is so desperately pressing it to and keeping it to her. So she ruins it. She kills it. So the possessiveness in her, and she begins to see that as um, a sort of masochistic thing to do. And she begins to recognise that it also makes her sort of swing from one pole to the other. On the one hand, she's desperate to be at one with someone, with another man in particular. Um, but on the other hand, she wants to be independent. So she's swinging between one pole and the other, and she sees that it's possessiveness that's causing that. And she begins to recognise, I lied with that, a sort of greed in her that's desperately wanting to gather things up and, uh, and eat them, and that comes out, she sees, in a physical eating disorder. Ambition. This is beginning to look like a, one of those <laughs> lovely catalogues for Evagrius or someone of the, <laughs> of the deadly sins. Not surprisingly. Ambition and self-importance are something else that she notes. She so much wants to be a writer. And she doesn't regard her diaries as what she wants to write. They are just her outpourings in the inner journey. What she really wants to write are poems, essays, novels and short stories. I mean, what we have is wonderful writing, but it's not what it's about for her. But she begins to see that her difficulty in doing the writing she wants to is tied up with her desire to be a wonderful, amazing, perfect, extraordinary writer. <laughs> and she begins to see that what actually within her she wants to write about are actually quite small, everyday things. But she can never quite do that because she's trying to work on this huge scale that she sees herself as. And that stops her because it isn't what is within her to write. She also begins to see that her life, that she's not able to stand on her own two feet. And she doesn't mean standing on her own two feet in the sense of being very, very independent so that she doesn't need anybody else for anything at all. But she means she can see that she is moulding her behaviour in order to get other people to behave in certain ways towards her. So, for instance, and this is all very down to earth, it's about everyday life. She begins to recognise that when she's ill, which she is often, she will just keep going. Because if she lets her friends know that she's too ill to go out with them, they might ditch her. 
But she's not able to do what she needs and to be herself because she's frightened of the effect it will have on other people and those around her. And so that's another area where she realises how much she swings from one thing to the other. Her pretending not to be ill so that her friends won't think she's a wimp. On the other hand, sort of staying in her room and wallowing in her illness. <laughs> and then she also realises um, that she's indisciplined and lacks self-control. <laughs> she doesn't have to go to the office at nine o'clock, so there she is, she sits down at her desk and she just can't get down to it. She always has an excuse. And she begins to see that more clearly too, that she's working against herself. She talks about having an exaggerated self-consciousness. She's so wonderfully direct, actually, about herself and what she sees in herself. And she's often talking about materialism, by which she doesn't mean just doing a lot of shopping. It means, for her, relying on things which are external, anything which is external, people's attitudes to her, um, food, anything. That's probably enough, isn't it, of, of, of grits, uh, grit and stones and blockages, those things that she more and more sees and more clearly sees as the things that block, up, block her away from what she also describes as the source of life. She knows that she needs to be open to the source of life within her. And she sums it up um, like this at one point. With each minute that passes, I shed more wishes and desires and attachments. There are moments when I can see right through life and the human heart. When I understand more and more and become calmer and calmer, and I'm filled with a faith in God that has grown so quickly inside me that it frightened me at first, but has now become inseparable from me. And now to work. And that and now to work is actually quite an important thing. Because she can just get down to it. She can focus on it. She doesn't need excuses and things to keep her away. So that sense of shedding more and more desires and attachments. So what is it that helps to get rid of those desires and attachments? She talks about it being a process that goes slowly, steadily and patiently. I mean, personally, I would entirely agree with that. It is a slow, steady and patient process, but I don't know, 18 months seems pretty quick. <laughs> One of the most important things um, for her is a person, a person called Julius Speer, who Julius was Julius, Julius, Julius. Speer, S-P-I-E-R, who is a teacher, she describes him as a mediator between herself and God, an inspiration, um, someone to whom she has an intimate attachment, and finally, um, a physical one. A really quite extraordinary character, I think, by, by our standards. He, he had a great ability to read a person's soul through their handprints palm prints, so he's a sort of palm reader, um, but not just a fairground palm reader. He um, had had some, uh, done some work with Jung, and it was Jung who had encouraged him to earn his living as a sort of Cairo psychologist, or <laughs> bringing together his understanding and his sort of spiritual insight and everything that he had and his, his ability to, to read palms, to help other people. And he clearly was an immense influence on her. So there was a person, a teacher, 
an inspirer. How old was he? I don't know. I don't know. Older than her, but I don't know how much older. <coughs> there were books, the Bible, Rilke, the German poet, Dostoevsky, Augustine, interesting collection, which figure quite strongly amongst the many writers that she was interested in. Psalms and the Gospel of Matthew are particularly prominent in, in the, the scripture that she mentions. And then writing about it, the spiritual journal, is clearly a central part of this, of this process. But the thing, the way she talks about it perhaps as strongly as anything else, is this whole business of turning inward. That was the central thing for her. Quite early on in the diary, she writes one morning, I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice, lose myself. You could call it meditation. Now, we don't know exactly what she did each day in terms of prayer and spiritual discipline, but that's a point when she makes a decision, a definite decision to do that, to turn inwards. Until eventually she can say, yes, we carry everything within us, God and heaven and hell and earth and life and death and all of history. Externals are simply so many props. Everything we need is within us. So this business of listening into herself and then listening in to others as a result of that. Till eventually she begins to recognise that this listening in to herself is listening into God within herself and that it's actually God within her listening in or rather God listening into God within her. That really is the essence of what's going on. The Spirit speaks to the Spirit comes to mind from uh, the New Testament. <clears throat> and allied with that idea of listening in and the writing and the turning inward is learning just to watch her thoughts and her moods, to take note of them. Noticing what's going on. She talks about tracing her appetites back to their most secret hidden lair and trying to root them out. So where does this difficulty come with, you know, that she, that she describes with her writing and with people, tracing it back to her possessiveness, and then trying to let go of it. And in that process, she begins to recognise the function of her depressions. She says, later on in the diary, she'd begun to see her depressions as a regulator and when they come, she knows that she's gone wrong somewhere and has to start listening in more clearly. And this is, in a way, the nub of what she is doing in this passage. But I always project myself back into reality. So she's watching what's going on. And when she realises that she's off somewhere, she projects herself back into reality, accepting the things the way they are. This is quite early on. I make myself confront everything that crosses my path, which sometimes leaves me feeling battered. It is just as if I let myself crash violently into myself, leaving dents and scratches. So any wonder we don't want to do it, really. <laughs> but I imagine that it has to be like that. I sometimes feel I am in some blazing purgatory, that I am being forged into something else. But into what? I can only be passive, allow it to happen to me. But then I also have the feeling that all the problems of our age and of mankind in general have to be battled out inside my head, and that means being active. So she's sort of struggling with what all of this, this might mean and the difficulty of it. This active acceptance. A bit later on she talks about it like this. Something, is, something in me is growing. And every time I look inside, something fresh has appeared, and all I have to do is to accept it, to take it upon myself, to bear it forward, and to let it flourish.
And then, strikingly, she says a bit later, something has crystallized. I have looked our destruction, our miserable end, which has already begun straight in the eye and accepted it into my life. And my love of life has not been diminished. So the key, what she begins to realise as this is going on, is that what's, what's happening in her, what's growing in her, is prayer. So she writes her journal of her inner life, and she gradually begins to sense that what she's writing is a form of prayer. It's not just an outpouring. It's something to do with this growing of God within her. It's a part of that. Um, and she has, almost as a symbol of this, this business of the girl who could not kneel, she calls herself, who's ashamed to kneel, who hasn't the courage to kneel, to kneel before God. And it's a theme through her life of sometimes feeling this sort of pulsing through her, this urge, as though she's almost forced to kneel, that which is greater than her, making her kneel down in prayer and folding the hands. And, she, and as she says at one point, I didn't get that from my Jewish background. It isn't a gesture that she learnt in her own um, culture. It, it's as though it's just given to her and she has to do it. And she has to learn how to do it as part of this um, finding everything within her, finding herself. Um, it's as though, she says at one point, it's as though this kneeling is what I was made for. It's a sort of physical symbol um, of everything that's happening. And as far as we can gather from her diaries, prayer increasingly is present in her life, in all the corners of her life, and it takes all sorts of forms. Um, praying for others, giving thanks, more and more giving thanks, talking to God, and as her diaries go on, increasingly they are written as addressed to God. Oh God, dear God. They are dialogues with God rather than just outpourings of her own soul. Sometimes she talks about drawing a prayer being like drawing a protective cloak around her so that she can then go out and face everything again. She says, sometimes when I least expect it, someone suddenly kneels down in some corner of my being while I'm out walking or just talking to people. And that someone, the one who kneels down, is myself. <laughs> She's almost surprised. Something about um, this sense of God, finally, that's growing within her and eventually becomes everything to her. She's not a theologian and she's not attempting to write systematically about her experience. It's what's... She's writing down what she experiences. So... Um, if any quotations I make about how she speaks about God are not definitions of God for her, they're how she perceives or experiences God at that point in time. I sort of want to put that on as a caveat because it, it's quite easy sometimes to try and read them as theological statements and then perhaps misunderstand uh, what she's trying to, to get over. So she doesn't try and define God. She doesn't pick up on any... Um, systematic notions of God from the Jewish background or a Christian background, although, you know, you can hear the resonances there as she talks. She doesn't really define God apart from herself and life. They're all of a piece, really. God just is. It's just there. And you just have to find God or let God find you, both ways round. But the sorts of words that she uses when she's talking about the relationship with God are... Um, faith, having faith, faithfulness, believing. She gets to the point where she can say, I believe in God, and that's an important moment for her. Beautiful, rich, meaning, peace, harmony, love, intimate, joy, 
strength, gratitude, contentment, on one occasion mournful contentment, immeasurable, infinite, mystery, silence, simplicity, being. So a wide range of words that she uses quite naturally in relation to the growing sense of God. Quite early on she um, talks about God in this quite limited way to start with. So I want you to sort of get a sense of, of, of this rightening within her. God, take me by your hand. I shall follow you dutifully and not resist too much. <laughs> so you're quite the start, isn't it? A bit later, last night, shortly before going to bed, I suddenly went down on my knees in the middle of his large room, almost automatically forced to the ground by something stronger than myself. Some time ago I said to myself, I am a kneeler in training. <laughs> That's lovely. I was still embarrassed by this act. As intimate as gestures of love that cannot be put into words either, except by a poet. And she says, you need courage to put that into words. She's talking about sorrow. What's, what's growing in her all the time is this increasingly unshakable, not just a sense, but the reality of it is so powerful in her, that life is beautiful, that life is meaningful, and life is rich. Those come again and again and again. Life is beautiful, life is meaningful, life is rich. And that is, the, as it were, the ultimate nature of life. And if you can be present to that, it really doesn't matter what life in its externals, as it were, throws at you. It cannot change that ultimate reality. It doesn't matter if your body is being broken. And she really means this. Life is still beautiful. It is the most extraordinary statement to be able to keep on making in those circumstances. And you see her struggle to live it, because this is all about lived experience and living this out. She's not interested in the insights just for themselves, but in order that she can live them. And you can see how sometimes at one point, she almost has to sort of let that one go, because the the awfulness of what's, of what's being visited upon the Jews in, in the labour camp is so appalling. And if you were given sorrow, the space its gentle origins demand, then you may truly say, life is beautiful and so rich. So beautiful and so rich that it makes you want to believe in God. <laughs> so you can see it's out of that opening up of herself to this experience from her deeper self that's beginning to make her believe in God. <laughs> so her belief in God and her ability to say that comes as a result of her experience and gets stronger and stronger as a result of her experience, both the awfulness of her experience and the wonder of her experience. And at one point, uh, she begins to say, interestingly, I think, God is not accountable to us, but we are to him. I, we can't expect God to explain to us why certain things are happening in the world or in my life. <laughs> it's actually t'other way round. God is there. Um, there'll be another quote on that which may make that a little clearer. There's a very interesting one. Let's go on to that one straight away, actually. So, <coughs> later on, reflecting on the same thing, a sort of rightening reflection on it. But one thing is becoming increasingly clear to me, that you cannot help us, that we must help you ourselves. And you so said a little bit earlier that she doesn't blame God for what's happening. And that is all we can manage these days, and also all that really matters that we safeguard that piece of you, God, in ourselves, and perhaps in others as well. You cannot help us, 
but we must help you and defend your dwelling place inside us to the last. And there are those who want to put their bodies in safekeeping. She's talking about people who make the decision to hide away, to try and hide away um, from the Nazis. There are those who want to put their bodies in safekeeping, but who are nothing more now than a shelter for a thousand fears and bitter feelings. And they say, I shan't let them get me into their clutches. But they forget that no one is in their clutches who is in your arms. I shall always feel safe in God's arms. They may well succeed in breaking me physically, but no more than that. I may face cruelty and deprivation, the likes of which I cannot imagine. Yet all this is as nothing to the immeasurable expanse of my faith in God and my inner receptiveness. And when she worries, she says, worries are just votes of no confidence in God. <laughs> so, let's bring this quickly to a close here. I now realise, God, how much you have given me, so much that was beautiful and so much that was hard to bear. Yet whenever I showed myself ready to bear it, the hard was directly transformed into the beautiful. And the beautiful was sometimes much harder to bear, so overpowering did it seem. To think that one human heart can experience so much, oh God, so much suffering and so much love. I'm so grateful to you, God, for having chosen my heart in these times to experience all the things that it has experienced. And this last couple come right at the end of the diary. When the situation in the labour camp is getting dire and dire and she's more and more convinced that she won't survive. Uh, she's um, recounting a conversation. Um, this is in... This isn't Auschwitz, this is... This, this is in the labour camp. We don't have anything from Auschwitz, right. yeah. She's had a letter from someone, I think. He enclosed a quotation, and yet God is love. I completely agree, and it is truer now than ever. And then finally, you have made me so rich, O oh God. Please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become an, un an uninterrupted dialogue with you, O oh God, one great dialogue. At night, too, when I lie in bed and rest in you, O oh God, tears of gratitude run down my face, and that is my prayer. <laughs> <laughs>